Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Prashant, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Great to be here, Sam. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Let's get started by having you tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you got uh, involved in, in working in ML and AI. Great, great. So I have been, I mean, I have been working in sort of, I mean, uh, the uh, applied math space for a long time. So my, my undergraduate degree was in uh, operations research. Uh, I got a PhD in operations research um, and then uh, started working on So At that time, this was not part of data science. I mean, there was no field like data science when I did my PhD. But uh, I mean, after my PhD, uh, which was in operations research, where I, we were basically uh, optimizing uh, truck routes. So figuring out how shipments should be routed from origin to destination, how we should assign drivers to trucks. Uh, and then again, there are lots of rules around how, my, how many hours a driver can drive and uh, the duty time that they have. So a lot of, I mean, incorporating all those rules to figure out how, how drivers should be uh, uh, allocated to trucks, I mean, assigned to trucks. Uh, so those are the kinds of problems that I was solving during my PhD, which were primarily uh, integer programming problems. And um, so I did a lot of work uh, around uh, optimization then. And then uh, immediately after that, I started working on uh, price optimization and markdown optimization, demand forecasting. Um, uh, for for I started working for SAP, and so there, I mean, we were working on these problems in the retail space, retail and fashion retail space. So this, I mean, demand forecasting. Some of these problems are uh, very much. I mean, they are basically your dependent variable is the sales, and uh, then you have a bunch of independent variables which are, uh, uh, I mean, which again depend upon the kind of product that you're selling. I mean, so a fashion product will have very different independent variables than if you look at, for example, products which are retail. I mean, typical retail products like a can of milk, for example, or, or uh, or fruits or vegetables, right? So uh, we were sort of worked on that for a while. And then uh, then I, I mean, uh, I, I was in the US at that time, came back to India. And then I was, uh, I set up uh, a, a company which is called Imagna, which is basically uh, using machine learning to uh, understand customer behavior from cookie data. So we were basically uh, dropping cookies at uh, on multiple uh, e-commerce websites and uh, getting a lot of detailed information about how customers are behaving on those websites. So you can actually see how uh, they buy clothing, for example, what products they looked at, what kind of sizes they looked at, what colors they looked at, uh, what styles they looked at, and all of that. Or, or for example, I mean, integrating, for example, what, what travel sites they went into, I mean, how they, uh, where they're traveling to, what travel locations they've looked at, or uh, what kind of movie shows they're watching. So we had a, a very consolidated set of uh, data uh, from cookies, which we were then utilized to um, do real-time bidding on uh, ads, on basically online ads. And we had a built a real-time bidding platform. And that was then, I mean, uh, so that that was again, I mean, AI driven. I was I was heading that company, so I was also, I mean, uh, playing more of a commercial role in that. And then uh, that got acquired by uh, the organization that uh, uh, I currently work for called Fractal Analytics. So Fractal Analytics acquired my previous company, and then I uh, I joined Fractal as chief data scientist. And in that role, again, uh, I mean, as chief data scientist, I was working on um, some problems, and then we sort of identified there is a large gap. Uh, in the radiology space where we felt that deep learning could make a substantial impact by automating the interpretation of images. So that's how uh, I sort of um, uh, transitioned from the uh, chief data scientist role at uh, Fractal into uh, becoming the CEO of QR.ai and uh, have been working on building this over the last two and a half years. Um, and so that's, that's, that's my story. And Cure is currently in the process of rolling out a uh, kind of a package solution focused on chest uh, radiology. Is that right? 
So we have uh, exactly. I mean, so uh, one of our solutions is in chest radiology, which basically can uh, automatically interpret chest X-rays. Uh, and a second solution is on uh, uh, head CT scans, um, so which is basically automatically interpreting head CT scans. Th those are the two two main solutions we have built. I mean, there are some more solutions that we've built over the last uh, several years, but we, I mean, from a commercial perspective, we focus on these two. And so there's been, over the past few years, there have been uh, a ton of work. Uh, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it feels like a, a kind of gold rush in the medical field. When you look at the, the research journals, it's, hey, we've got this new tool, CNN, let's apply it to radiological image type A, type B, type C. There's a, you know, a series of these types of papers. I'm curious what you've learned about the gap between what you might read in a, a paper and actually bringing a, a product to market. So uh, that's a that's a very good question, Sam. I think I think uh, I have a, a very strong point of view on that. Uh, <laughs> I figured you might. <laughs> um, so uh, I mean, there are lots of papers. I mean, because CNNs, I mean, can read images really well, right? And so people right. felt that, okay, I'll just take a CNN, I'll apply it to this medical data that I have, and I'll get good results. And they do get good results because they're overfitting on the data. So you have 2,000 images. Let's say you have got 2,000 x-rays to uh, uh, train your algorithm on, and you sort of label them. You label each of those images as normal. Let's say these are x-rays, right? You label them as normal or abnormal, and you... Uh, Model on that, and you will get some. I mean, you basically uh, put some as validation testing and so on, and you get good results. But what happens is that, especially with X-rays, right? There is a huge variety of data. I mean, if you go from a Philips machine to a GE machine, uh, or you go from one center to another, one center to another. I mean, there are difference in settings, difference in machines. Uh, there is a wide variation, and what what happens typically is you take a data set, you train on that data set. Uh, you validate, you test, I mean, you do all the right things. But when you take that algorithm and you try to generalize to a new data set, it does not work well at all. And we saw this initially, I mean, when we started working out, working on this problem, on the chest X-ray problem, we had around uh, 25,000 scans, um, 25,000 X-rays, uh, along with their reports. So we did, uh, what we did is we took the reports, we run, ran NLP on those reports, uh, some uh, rule-based NLPs, not, not machine learning-based, but rule-based natural, natural language processing, which basically extracted out uh, the abnormality from the report. So if, for example, one of the abnormalities is called pleural effusion, whereas it's fluid in the lungs. So uh, we said we will extract out uh, a bunch of abnormalities. So we trained the algorithms to do that, to train these NLP algorithms. So now we have got an X-ray and the corresponding abnormality, right? a chest X-ray and a corresponding abnormality. And uh, we trained our models on that. And then what we saw is that when we had a new data set that was trained on 25,000 uh, images, um, uh, and when we got a new data set, it did not translate at all the accuracy. We were getting around 90% accuracy on the first data set. Uh, on the second uh, data set that we got from another hospital, we were uh, somewhere in the 60s, I think. And so it was, it was I mean, substantially lower. And uh, mm -hmm. then we figured that I think, I mean, there's there is a lot of variation in the data. And then uh, that's also, that's that's one challenge. And of course, I mean, over the uh, last two and a half years, we have increased our X-ray database from, from that 25,000 number to around uh, 1.5 plus million. So today we have a, a huge amount of data. So it sort of has learned a, a wide variety of uh, data patterns that it sees. I mean, acquisition, data acquisition patterns, because X-ray acquisition can occur, I mean, in many different ways. And so it has learned a lot of these acquisition patterns, uh, learned about a lot of different machines that are generating those X-rays. So that makes it a little bit more generalizable. I mean, I think the more amount of data that you have, it becomes more generalized. You mentioned using NLP to uh, pull information out of reports or records. Is this is this kind of data mining the electronic medical records to produce labels for your data set? Or was, it, was there something else happening? 
it's not electronic medical record. So it's basically, I mean, for uh, it's, I mean, you could think of it as a medical record, but basically for every radiology image, you will have a radiology report are part of radiology information systems. Oh, okay. So you can, so you are basically just pulling that radiology report. You're not pulling any more medical records. So ideally, I mean, a patient will have a lot more. I mean, they will have the history of why they came to the hospital, right. uh, why they took the history in the first place. Uh, and then maybe there is some microbiological test which gets done afterwards where they are diagnosed with some disease, right? Uh, a radiology report may not contain all of that. It will basically tell you that I found these patterns on the X-ray. For example, it might say that I found a pleural effusion, which is basically some fluid in the lungs, or that could be due to a tuberculosis or other disease. But uh, a radiologist will not report on that. They will report on what they see in the X-ray. So it's more visible, visible features. Okay. These uh, radiology reports are they coded, or are they? Is it just kind of natural text notes from the radiologists? Uh, they are natural text. Uh, I mean, sometimes, I mean, again, every hospital will have their own format template for reporting. Uh, there are some standard templates uh, recommended by the uh, Radiology Society of North America. But uh, again, I mean, I think uh, a lot of uh, people don't use those uh, templates. I mean, but so so uh, to answer your question, I mean, they are very varied, uh, but uh, it, they have some structure to it. This question is maybe inspired by a, a image that you have on on the the Cure website. It, it has like a you know you're basically looking at a, a a brain scan on the monitor. I'm wondering if you know setting aside machine learning and AI, are we getting to a point where radiologists are looking at these images digitally and creating bounding boxes and like electronically notating these images in a way that will make it easier for future ML and AI applications, or is it still all, you know, manual today? Uh, it's, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think what we are seeing is that uh, definitely there is, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, work going in towards creating annotated data sets. Uh, and so a lot of hospitals are working on that. I mean, I think a, a lot of the hospitals in the U.S., I mean, for example, a Mass General Hospital, uh, they have their own uh, data science teams. And those teams are also working on similar problems. So so there is definitely a lot of effort going towards uh, creating these annotated data sets. So I, I would not say that, I mean, a lot of radiologists are working on it. I think focused groups in different parts of the world are working on these kinds of uh, annotations. And it's not not something which is completely standardized yet. Right. But it sounds like you're also saying that it's not, you know, we're not necessarily seeing the radiologist's tool change to be more like a data annotation exercise. It's it's happening separately in some data science team that may be, you know, doing similar things to what you were doing. Uh, exactly. Because, I, I mean, I'll tell you why. Right? So, for example, uh, one of the things we had to do was to, uh, when we were trying to detect uh, bleeds from, I mean, bleeds from HCD scans, they had to actually go in, or, or not us, but I mean, uh, trained specialists had to go in and mark out the bleed on those scans. And that's a time-taking process because the CT scan of the head will have somewhere between 50 to 100 slices. Uh, and for each slice, there will be uh, either there's some, some of those slices obviously will not have a bleed, or maybe all of them don't have a bleed, but uh, some, when you have a bleed, you have to actually mark the boundary of the bleed, which is not a continuous boundary, I mean, or it, sort of a ragged boundary and then you have to mark through mark all of that that that's time consuming for um, radiologists and so it will not be easy for somebody to sort of incorporate that into the radiology workflow because they want to see a scan they want to report on it in a few minutes and then be done with that and marking out the boundaries will take them maybe 20 30 minutes so i don't think uh, some of these are easily 
incorporated into the workflow, which is why we sort of started doing this natural language processing because we said there is a lot of data already available in the report because I'm saying that, I mean, the radiologist is already written, writing that there is this pleural effusion in this part of the lung. So we can extract out all, the, all that information from those reports and use that for training. So rather than getting them to sort of manually mark out these abnormalities. So you also mentioned these different acquisition patterns. These are related to the, the different types of radiology machines? Uh, these are radiology machines. Uh, the amount of uh, exposure, I mean, amount of uh, uh, radiation that you uh, uh, produce. I mean, so there are, I mean, everybody will have a different setting. I mean, so these machines also have some settings. And uh, so there are many different settings. And so the, the especially for x-rays, I mean, especially for x-rays, uh, it's the data from each center is sort of slightly different. I mean, there is not, it's not exactly the same. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, there's a tendency to think about the, you know, CNNs or ML and AI in general as these, you know, maybe give them give them more credit for being naturally generalized than they are. Uh, my daughter is doing an internship with the podcast currently where she's taking podcasts that we've already recorded and running them through automated transcription and looking at a bunch of different services and kind of rating their performance. And you know, over time, we've learned that some of the services do better with, you know, phone calls. Some of them do better with podcasts. Some of them do better with audio that's recorded uh, in a room. Like the the characteristics, the you know, very subtle characteristics of the input data have a uh, a huge impact on the algorithm's ability to perform well and extract text from them, uh, much more so than you might think. And it sounds exactly. like you've you've had very similar experiences on the uh, on the input side with these radiological images. So I have a very interesting story in this. I mean, so uh, that's uh, when we started working on chest X-rays. It's probably around two years back. So we uh, we were sort of still tying up with hospitals. We did not have any uh, any hospital data, any any real data coming from uh, our collaborators. So we were we said we will mine the internet for data. So we we looked at some internet sources. We collected uh, some ten thousand images, and we said let's let's try to train a model on this. And we trained a model on that, and that was very accurate. I mean, it was uh, super accurate uh, in determining normal from abnormal. So it was classifying normal versus abnormal. And uh, then we said, I mean, I mean, this is a very small amount of data, right? I mean, typically, if you're looking at images, you're looking at mil- mil- millions of uh, images to train algorithms. And we said, let's let's see. I mean, so we look, we created an attribution algorithm. So we were attributing, we're figuring out uh, which. I mean, if you're attribute what exactly the algorithm is learning, you can find out boxes. So we can basically, for example, there is a something called occlusion, occlusion-based occlusion based attribution where you can black out one box, uh, one small box within the whole uh, image and then see what is the attribution of that uh, to the prediction. So if you, if you black out a box because of which the algorithm is saying that that particular X-ray is abnormal, uh, then uh, suddenly it becomes normal. The prediction changes from normal to abnormal. And you look at how each box is impacting the probability of being normal or abnormal. So the boxes which have the highest impact will have the highest difference between the normal versus abnormal probability when they are blacked out. Uh, so we, we created these attribution methods and we were trying to attribute uh, the algorithm, uh, what the algorithm was learning. And we found that the algorithm actually was learning to 
distinguish something very simple because what what was there these were internet images so typically all the abnormal images had a lot of uh, text on them so some typing or some written text and uh, the uh, normal images did not have any any annotation any kinds of uh, text or uh, anything like that so it was basically <laughs> training to recognize typewritten letters i mean that's what it's pointing to so if it sees typewritten letters it will assume that it's abnormal if it doesn't see typewritten letters it's normal so that is what it was learning and um, so these algorithms are very very good i mean they're very smart but also uh, they can learn very different things i mean than what you expect them to learn so you've learned the importance of you know real data and and these different input patterns and and you've kind of learned some things about the model's ability to generalize across this what else have you learned the other things that we have learned are also that uh, i mean if you look at um, when we look at uh, all all the research in uh, image uh, all of them are uh, 224 by 224 images because that's the image net size. And we look at most research uh, is about that size of image. And uh, if you look at an X-ray, I mean, a typical chest X-ray will be around 4,000 by 4,000 pixels. Mm-hmm. So if you are downsizing, so initially when we started out doing research, we started with uh, taking that 4,000 by 4,000 or I mean that size image and, and downsizing it to to downsampling it to 224 by 224, which basically takes away a lot of the detail that you're looking at. I mean, so you cannot... Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, if you have a lot of data, it'll it'll learn well. I mean, it it will be able to detect really large abnormalities. It will not be able to detect subtle abnormalities. And so then we had to devise our own methods to sort of work with uh, higher resolution images. So today we are able to work with full, full resolution images. So we had to sort of look at patches at a time and and do a lot of different techniques. I mean, some of which are our own IP. So we we have not published it yet. Uh, so I cannot reveal it, but there is there is a lot of work which we have done, which sort of enables us to look at the full sized image rather than looking at these uh, down sampled images, and that's all drawbacks of uh, what I see. I mean, out there in terms of literature, I mean, everybody uh, is taking uh, the uh, these uh, standard sort of uh, dense nets or resnets and then applying them to the down sampled images, and that that also uh, loses a lot of information from that original image. So that's if you look at most of the literature, that's that's what is happening right now. Uh, is there anything that you can say generally about the approach that you've taken uh, to look at the large images? Are you like windowing across the images or uh, any hints you can give us? So I, it's it's a patch-based approach. I mean, uh, it's uh, we, we look at patches. Uh, we determine some patches. Uh, and uh, so that's 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 all that's all I can say. I mean, I think okay. there is there is definitely some uh, very very strong IP in there, which uh, sort of any because I don't think anybody right now is working on uh, large images. I think everybody else is working on uh, smaller sized images. And um, we also tried. I mean, so we also tried training these. Uh, I mean, larger sized using uh, the typical uh, dense nets, dense nets, and um, it it sort of doesn't I mean perform as well. I mean, or sometimes it doesn't converge at all. So we saw lots of convergence problems with uh, larger sized images so and do you have uh, any intuition for why that is um i i don't actually i don't i mean we we have tried that and um, I, I i really don't have a, a clue why why that doesn't work typically i mean so uh, not sure but there is not much testing i mean honestly uh, when i look at research there is not much testing that has been done on larger images because most of the work i mean 224 by 224 is a decent size for uh, your regular images so that's that's sort of I, I I don't I don't see that there is a lot of work done done in that in that area. 
in your approach and or the the literature that you've seen, does uh, transfer learning play a lot? Or are you looking at pre-trained models or models, you know, that are pre-trained with ImageNet or some other data set? Or are you just training from scratch? So we have, um, uh, we, we found that uh, pre-training with ImageNet and then uh, using that um, uh, on our uh, data set running, I mean, using pre-training on ImageNet did not improve performance on the uh, on our data sets. Uh, but what we found is that there is opportunity to do transfer learning within the domain. So I could basically learn from other types of X-rays uh, and use that learning to test X-rays. So there is some some of that learning that we have been able to use. But again, that uh, the transfer learning there, uh, the impact of that is very small. I mean, I think uh, it also has to do with the amount of data that we have because we have so much data. Uh, probably, I mean, the transfer learning is not that impactful. But if you have a amount of data, then maybe uh, if you transfer knowledge from other uh, other domains, it might be more useful. What else have you learned? I think, uh, I mean, some of the learnings are about um, the annotations also. I mean, so we are, what we have learned is that uh, we can uh, do annotations at multiple levels and bring, I mean, train models which can uh, do multi-level. So basically there are multiple types of classification. So one is that, one is one is to segment out uh, the abnormality. So you have, you're actually, the annotation will involve actually going into uh, that image or that slice of a CD scan and then saying that these, this is the boundary of the abnormality. So clearly marking that out. Um, a second type of annotation that we have been, we have done is looking at, for example, on a CD scan, slice by slice. So you can basically uh, look at one slice and say whether that slice is abnormal or not, which is a much easier task uh, than actually annotating and going out and marking out uh, the abnormality on that. So that's a second uh, type of annotation. And then the third type of annotation is uh, at a scan level, either at the whole CD scan level or at the X-ray level. Using the report, uh, we can extract out the abnormality uh, on that particular uh, scan. So, uh, I mean, we have models which combine all three of these. So we can, we have losses, I mean, losses which will take the segmentation losses and add the uh, classification losses at a slice level and the classification losses at the um, at the scan level and, and combine all of that. So that's, those are the models where we can actually uh, take all the data that we have because we, we have 350,000 HCD scans and we cannot expect to label all of them. I mean, we cannot expect to sort of uh, 350,000 HCD scans each with, let's say, uh, 100 slices. So, uh, you're talking about uh, 35 million slices. Uh, and so we cannot expect to sort of mark out uh, all of them. So you have to uh, mark out a subset of that. And then so we have marked out a subset of that. We have uh, labeled uh, at a slice level a subset of that. And then, of course, for each of those 350,000 scans, we have got reports. So we have we can extract out the abnormalities from um, uh, those as well. So we have combined all of this. And then the models that perform the best on our data are uh, ones which combine all this knowledge, all the knowledge from all of these types of annotation. Uh, so just to clarify then, if you're, you know, when I think about a traditional, like a ResNet type of a, a model, that's a model that is basically looking at a, a single image. Is the implication that you've built out an architecture that, you know, is almost, I'm almost thinking of it like a, a 3D type of architecture that is, that takes in multiple slices and kind of understands the relationship between these slices relative to the, the whole scan? Right, right, exactly, exactly. Tell me a little bit about the process of defining or coming up with this model architecture. Uh, how did you arrive at the the final architecture for doing that? So I think, I mean, it's, I mean, primarily trial and error. I mean, reading the latest papers and, uh, I mean, we have, uh, I mean, around uh, 10, 10 plus deep learning scientists now. I mean, so, uh, I mean, each person focused on uh, their own problem. And, I mean, I think what, what we have basically 
been doing is, uh, I mean, looking at what is the latest research in a physics space and uh, trying to uh, implement that. I mean, so we implemented many different techniques from many different papers. Some of them work, some of them don't work, uh, or a lot of them don't work. I mean, very few of them work, but... <laughs> So a lot of them don't translate directly. I mean, I think what we have seen is that uh, there are lots of new techniques out there, uh, lots of new, I mean, which show very promising results on, on the paper itself shows very promising results. But then when we apply it to the domain that we are working in, it doesn't really translate well. So um, so we have seen that. I mean, but uh, I mean, uh, typically our architectures are very simple. I mean, in fact, what we have found is that uh, the simpler you make it, uh, the better it is. Can you give me an example of something that you tried that was, you know, more on the the complex side that you thought would add a lot of value, but it ended up doing something simpler, worked out better? We were trying GANs at some point of time to see if we could generate uh, abnormal and normal X-rays using GANs and then uh, use that for training or use that to do data augmentation. And uh, we have tried uh, other techniques. I mean, even, um, um, I mean, some... Uh, I mean, some of the techniques from video uh, action recognition and videos we've tried for our um, head CT scan technology. And some of these, I mean, again, I, uh, some of these have not really worked out. I mean, I think the more complex technology, we have not seen that uh, it sort of translates to uh, real. Um, I mean, again, I mean, I, I would not say that some of the technologies that we developed have not been complex. But again, I think I think in general, I mean, I would not I'd say that a lot of a lot of things that we've tried have not worked out. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you know, you're describing a, a world in which we might think of as applied ML and AI. There's still a lot of research involved in your process for developing this product suite and bringing it to market. Absolutely. I mean, I think there is there is a huge amount of research. Uh, there is a huge amount, huge amount of domain knowledge uh, which uh, we have brought in. I mean, which just makes the algorithm much better. So, uh, I mean, simple things actually make it easier. I mean, so for example, if you're detecting fractures, uh, if you see, I mean, if you just train a model on fractures, you'll probably see a lower accuracy. But if you look at uh, what is around the fracture, I mean, if you also detect bleeds and use that to, uh, I mean, improve your knowledge about the situation, you'll probably get, we actually get a better accuracy, better better probability. So, I mean, if you have a fracture, you most likely have a bleed in the brain also. So I think bringing in a lot of domain knowledge is critical in some of the areas uh, that we're working on. I mean, for example, detecting tuberculosis, uh, you have to look at certain types of features. So you have looking at certain things, I mean, on the upper lungs, I mean, so if it's in the lower part of the lungs, that's not going to be very relevant. Uh, so we have, I mean, brought in a huge amount of radiology knowledge into uh, what the, the algorithms you have developed, and those actually add a lot of value. Um, and of course, I mean, the research also is, the, I mean, we also have to do a lot of research because as I mentioned earlier, uh, most of the material out there is uh, focused on the types of images that are much smaller uh, and also two-dimensional, right? I mean, so you're looking at mostly two-dimensional videos, two-dimensional images. Uh, only in case of videos, you're looking at something which is not two-dimensional, but at least your sequence of images. And uh, uh, if you look at a CT scan or MRI, I mean, all of these are three-dimensional images. So you have to sort of get knowledge from all of the slices and bring that all together to infer a, a classification there. So so we have to, uh, I mean, congest, I mean, uh, sort of ingest knowledge from these sources, which, which again, um, uh, there is not much literature out there on some of these topics. So uh, though, of, of course, I mean, there are lots of people now working on um, working on this on technologies in in the medical space, but when we started, I mean, we started uh, around two and a half years back. There was, I mean, there were very few people who were working on uh, deep learning in the healthcare space, which has exponentially increased in the last last couple of years. And out of curiosity, have you directly applied any of the the work or models that uh, originated in looking at videos to this 
CT scan problem? We have, we have. Did that work out or was that a, another dead end or? Well, I think that that's something that has worked out for us. I mean, some of these techniques have worked out for us, but I, I would not be able to go into much detail on that right now because it's still something that we are working on and uh, we don't have, uh, we, I mean, I, yeah, so we have not published anything on that yet. The company has been active in publishing uh, some of its research findings. What are uh, some of the recent work that you've published? So we have published, uh, recently we published uh, our work on the HET-CT algorithm, which basically um, uh, detects I mean, multiple kinds of bleeds, fractures, uh, midline shift mass effect from, uh, from HET-CT scans. And uh, this, uh, we sort of published uh, some details of the algorithm. Our, I mean, this is our, the earlier version of our algorithm, which is probably around nine, I mean, around a year old. And uh, we sort of did a validation study of that on, uh, on a data set where, so we, we, we had a data set of 350,000 of which um, we had basically a, a, a training set, a validation set, and a testing set. Uh, but then what we did is we went out and collected uh, an additional 500 scans, which was from a very different source, completely new source. And we had those three uh, sort of reported or basically a radiologist had to go in and mark out on a user interface whether they found a intraparenchymal bleed, whether they found a fracture and so on. So this is just a tick box. And we had uh, sort of three radiologists do that on those 500 scans. And uh, we also compared our accuracy against that. And we found that uh, we were uh, 95%, 0.95 plus AUC on all of these, um, all of these, detecting all of these abnormalities. Uh, now, this is this is slightly older. I mean, so the technology that we have published there is maybe around a year old. Now, now it is currently, I mean, what we are looking at is around uh, 0.97, close to 0.97 plus on all abnormalities. So it, it's it's improved uh, a little bit since since we published that work. Has, have you published any data sets in this space? Yes. So we also open source this data set of 500 scans. Um, so uh, it's actually for exactly 491. Uh, we have published that. We open source that data set uh, along with the ground truth for that, uh, which is basically the reading of three radiologists. Um, so, I mean, I, one of the challenges that we found is that uh, everybody claims their own accuracy and there is no common data set on which people can sort of compare their accuracies. Like, for example, ImageNet is there. You can compare accuracy on ImageNet, right? There is nothing in the health, in the uh, in most of these spaces. I mean, so HCT, we said, let's put together this data set and then uh, let's, I mean, we, we published our results for that. I mean, of course, we, we anticipate that other people can also use that to publish their results on that particular data set. And you said how many scans in the data set? Uh, 491. And is is that that number of scans enough to really build uh, interesting models against? Uh, it'll be uh, hard to get a very accurate model. You could start and you could build some models on that. It, it definitely, uh, you could build models. I mean, uh, maybe the accuracy will suffer a little bit because it's not um, very large. I mean, so basically, if you, we have 491 of which uh, I would say um, around... 300 or so, I mean, I don't remember the exact numbers, but around 300 of them are abnormal. Uh, and of those abnormalities, if you look at a specific kind of bleed, let's say a, uh, an extradural bleed, there are probably around 40, 50 scans which have got extradural bleeds. So that itself may not be enough for you to determine and uh, be able to train a model to determine, to identify an extradural bleed. But this data set, the intention was not for people to train, uh, more, more for people to validate. So you can get and measure your algorithm uh, which you have trained on another data set, and you can measure your performance on this data set, and you can definitely uh, measure that to a very high level of accuracy. Okay. So it's more of, more of a testing data set. Got it. And are the scans, these full three-dimensional scans with uh, multiple slices each as well, or are they static slices? They are, they are three-dimensional, so they have, uh, I, I would say, anywhere from 50 to 100 slices per scan. 
What kind of uptake have you seen on that? Has anyone, uh, have you seen other groups doing validation against it and publishing their results? I, I mean, I, I, I have not seen, I mean, at least, as I, I mean, I, I have not looked at it in the last couple, uh, month or so, but I, I mean, before that, I have not seen, we released this data set in uh, March. So it's not been a long time. Uh, uh, so, but we have seen, uh, so I don't know if other people have published. I mean, I don't, I have not seen anybody publish against it as far as I know. Uh, but I have seen, uh, we have seen, uh, I mean, hundreds of people download that data. And uh, so hopefully we'll see some publications out of that soon enough. When you're building out these uh, models, so you've looked at head CT scans, you've looked at chest x-rays, you've looked at skull fractures. Is your objective to create a single model that is able to uh, detect abnormalities you know, in each of these different, you know, very different scenarios, or are you building a, a suite of very specialized tools that is, you know, specially trained and, and focused on uh, one particular problem space? Um, I mean, it's it's much more. I mean, actually, we are building very, very specialized tools. In fact, if you look at chest X-ray, we detect 15 different types of abnormalities. And for each abnormality, we have uh, multiple models. And so it's an ensemble of many models. So the number of models that go into even detecting these abnormalities from a ch- single chest X-ray, on a single chest X-ray, we run around 112 models right now to, to determine uh, all the different th- things we can report on that X-ray. So uh, we are we are building very, very specialized models. And I don't think uh, we, I mean, there is no, I mean, we will not definitely, I, I do not anticipate that we will be building models which can uh, detect uh, multiple kinds of abnormalities uh, from different kinds of uh, images. So we'll, we'll have very specialized algorithms for each. When you take a step back and you think about bringing these types of tools to market, what are some of the things that you've done with this in mind to build, you know, I want to say build scale, but that's not really the right word. It's it's almost like manage technical debt to, you know, manage all of these models and to allow you to you know, efficiently manage all of these models, I guess, and, and bring them to market? Or is there tooling that you built or an approach that you've taken and that helps you manage all of the complexity created by having so many very specific models? I mean, I would also add there's one more complexity is that uh, these models are improving at a very, very fast rate. I mean, so every, every, every month our models improve uh, by a few percentage points. So that is also there. I mean, so in terms of uh, a release cycle for our algorithms, we also have to figure that out. So there are there are multiple challenges. But what we are uh, one of the things that we are uh, doing is to uh, deploy these models as a cloud-based service. Uh, so that is the preferred model of deployment for us. So in that cloud-based service, then you can sort of uh, you are you are basically you, you can host those models and you can you have a full ownership of the models. And if you want to sort of upgrade them, it's not too much of an effort because you you are uh, owning that. So that's that's sort of uh, the uh, the model that we prefer in terms of deployment. Of course, I mean, uh, some some places we are working towards an on-premise deployment, and then in those scenarios, upgrading the models. I mean, we, they get a static version. I mean, they get a current version, and then upgrading them will be challenging. So, uh, cloud-based service allows us to allows us to uh, mitigate some of the problems that you talk about. Prashant, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. This has been super interesting, and I've enjoyed you know learning from what you've learned. Thank you so much, Sam. Uh, great talking to you as well. And uh, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Great talking to you. Fantastic. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Prashant or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 165. 
Don't forget to visit twimmelai.com slash nominate and cast your vote for us in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. <laughs>